Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. On today's Story Saturday, I'm talking with a fellow writer who I'm really excited to introduce you to. My name is Kieran Khan. I live in Oakland, California. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I'm a writer. I mostly write fiction, a little bit of nonfiction, and then a very little bit of poetry. Back in 2004, my husband Nate and I moved across the country from Minneapolis to Oakland so I could get my MFA in fiction at Mills College. I loved my time as a grad student at Mills. It's where I met some of my favorite writers in this world, many of whom are still friends today. Mills is a pretty special place. The graduate programs are co-ed, but the undergrad is one of the few women's colleges left in this country. And it makes a difference that the campus is mostly women. I've never been anywhere like it. The women who come there seem to feel empowered in a way that I'm not used to seeing out in the world. When I was there, so many of them were doing amazing things. It would not surprise me at all if the first woman our country elects as its president comes from a woman's college. Because while I have no complaints about my co-ed education, there is something unique that happens when it's only women in the room. There's a sense of possibility an openness that we don't often see. After I got my MFA, I got a job at Mills as the head cross-country coach. I coached high school before I came to Mills, and I was a Division I collegiate runner myself, so the job seemed like a good marriage between my past and my present. Kieran was one of the women I coached. I ran um, cross-country, and you were for like almost a semester. I don't even think I finished the fall season because crew kicked in. But, um, you know, you were an amazing coach. And at the time, I definitely didn't consider myself a writer. But you definitely were. And that was interesting and exciting to me because I didn't know a lot of athletes who were also creatives. And so you mentioned that part of your routine, like you had your running routine, and then you also had your writing routine. um, And that the artist way was really transformative for you because it kind of got you into this habit of just kind of tapping into a state of flow and it's been something that I've thought about since I just remember you talking about it as you know you would wake up in the morning and then you would sit down and you would just write and then kind of building that as a muscle and coming from a coach it just made a lot of sense to me the book Kieran heard me talking about was Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way And the habit she mentioned was morning pages. The idea was to wake up in the morning and journal freehand for several pages. It's a practice I needed a lot at that time of my life, when I often worked 80 hours a week at my job and was struggling to figure out how to make time for writing. I don't do morning pages today the way I did then, but the writing muscle I built during those years is the same one I use every day now to create episodes. The idea behind Morning Pages that was most helpful to me was that you just let yourself go, stream of consciousness style, for three pages with no editing. You don't censor yourself. You can worry about that later. Most of the time, the writing itself wasn't very good, 
But there was real value in learning to turn off my inner editor. That editor can be my harshest critic. And if left unchecked, it can shut me down completely. Over the last decade, the work of those morning pages trained the creative muscles that needed strengthening. I don't feel afraid anymore when I sit down to write, even on the days when what comes out isn't very good. I can worry about the editing later. Sometimes I scrap the whole thing, but you never get anywhere if you can't get that first draft down, if you can't just let yourself write. When Kieran first heard me talk about morning pages, neither of us had any idea what an incredible writer she'd become. It was an identity that she hadn't yet embraced herself, but that she would come to during her time at Mills, not because of me, but because of other writers she encountered along the way. I went to undergrad at Mills and I majored in econ and math, but it was always important to me to continue to take some form of art class while I was loading up on all of these like heavily quantitative classes. My junior year, I took a writing class and then my senior year, I also took a writing class and that kind of got me into more of a habit of writing creatively. I've been journaling since I was a little, little kid, like elementary school, and I still have every journal I've written in since I was 16. So I'd always had some kind of writing going on. And in those journals, I'd write poems like you do when you're trying to get through being a teenager. After I graduated, I did a one-year post-bac that was all math and it was really intense. And I didn't write for a couple years. But after those years of not writing, Kieran was ready to get back into it in a new way. She started submitting to writing workshops where she could pursue her writing under the guidance of a mentor. First, I submitted a kind of monologue for Yonikibat, which is like a South Asian version of the vagina monologues. And that was accepted. It was performed. I used that and submitted it to Vona. So Vona Voices is a writing workshop and community for writers of color. I entered their fiction workshop with Reina Grande, who continues to be a mentor to me. And I was in a regional program, so that's only three days, but we wrote every single day. And actually, it was one of the most productive writing times ever. So out of those three days... I think I had three separate short stories, all of which ended up getting published in the following year or two. For those of you who aren't used to the humdrum of rejection that artists face every day, let me just stop here and say that this kind of rate of return is incredible, especially for someone so new to writing. Writing three short stories in three days is impressive on its own. But getting them all published means that those stories were actually good enough to catch the attention of literary journals and editors, which is no small thing. So that was awesome. Highly recommend Reina as a mentor. Um, from there, I was able to apply to the longer week-long Vona workshop. So the regional ones are kind of these short weekend, ideally just for people in like a local area. And then the week-long workshop, people come from all over the country so I guess Vona was my start into kind of taking it more seriously. From Vona, I, well, from Raina specifically, I heard about the Penn America Emerging Voices Fellowship. And I'd say that was a big game changer for me. So Vona got me started. Penn made me feel like, okay, I'm really a writer now. 
The fellowship Karen is talking about is a huge one. I'll say more about that in a minute, but I think it's worth pausing here to say that writers rarely find those kinds of opportunities on their own. I think sometimes when we read books and stories from the writers that we love, we assume that those writers were always great, but most of us have needed a lot of help along the way. It's also why it's so crucial for our world that organizations like Vona can continue and thrive. Without both public and private arts foundations, artists can get easily lost, especially if, like Kieran, they didn't grow up thinking of themselves as artists or knowing where to look for opportunities. The Penn American Emerging Voices Fellowship that Kieran got is one that writers dream about. It is, as Kieran put it, a game changer. It's a literary mentorship based in Los Angeles that helps to launch the literary careers of writers who have historically been underrepresented and marginalized. It's a program designed to demystify the path to publication, with the ultimate goal of diversifying the publishing and media industries. So the thing about Penn is people apply from all over the country. I think five people get in. And so for me, especially being so new to writing and not identifying as a writer yet, even though I think at that point, I think I had been published before, but I still just like, I call myself a baby writer or like a wannabe writer. It really changed my whole way of going about things. There's also a whole piece around the business of being a writer, which people don't like to talk about. It's kind of like distasteful or whatever. Um, but it, those are necessary conversations that don't happen enough. But from Penn, I received a fellowship through the San Francisco Writers Grotto. So that was the following year. And then overlapping with that, I was an AWP writer to writer mentee. So I was paired with a mentor who lives in the UK, Laura Ellen Joyce, who's just like this amazing, really experimental, fantastic writer who also like, she isn't famous. So if Penn like emphasized kind of the business side of things, she really tapped into like the art of it, of it and just reminding me that I'm not writing to fulfill the same kind of objectives I may have with my day job. Because it's really hard to write or be creative if you are thinking about it that way, or at least it is for me. Writing was never my primary source of income and probably never will be. I remember Raina at Vona telling us about Penn Emerging Voices and then in the same breath telling us, not to quit our day jobs. It helped me stay realistic. It helped me, you know, take it seriously, but then also not take it personally. I work in research. I have worked in policy kind of research and data analysis for a nonprofit at one point. I did stuff for the NCAA. I now work at Twitter. I manage their quantitative user research team. Um, so we do a lot of the survey research for Twitter. We do, um, if you get an email that's like, take a survey to make Twitter better. Like that's, that's us. But yeah, so it's essentially around what are people's experiences using Twitter in the literal sense of can you navigate it? Can you connect to the people you want to connect to? And then also, you know, talking about things like harassment and trolls and people's experiences on that end as well. I mean, not just the negative, also, you know, the new things you might learn or, or things you kind of, the exciting pieces of Twitter as well. The momentum that Vona and Penn gave Kieran continued. In 2018, she was a Steinbeck Fellow, another highly prestigious award, one that has $15,000 attached to it. It meant that Kieran could finally begin paying off her student loans. 
I know that was a that was a definitive moment because that's another one where you know it's a small group of people who are selected. I felt like it was a real long shot, and you know it was the kind of acceptance where like your knees shake <laughs> or buckle. A couple of summers ago, Kieran got into the Ten House Writing Workshop, another one of those honors that writers dream about. At Ten House, she got to work with author Lydia Yuknovich. If you don't already know Lydia's work, let me suggest that you add it to your summer reading list. She's a wonderful author from Oregon who has written many best-selling, award-winning books, including the Book of Joan. Lydia wrote The Chronology of Water. She's like an amazing, I mean, she's an amazing writer, but she's even more so an amazing mentor. And she just really clicked with my work, which is validating. Like, I don't have an MFA. I don't have a creative writing degree. I think there's part of me that's always kind of searching for this legitimacy and it's just, I'm always very aware that there are literary and craft and technical things I just don't know because no one's ever told me <laughs> or I haven't found it in a book or, you know, experienced it through reading. That kind of motivates me to apply to these workshops and seminars and fellowships to try and really get as much of an MFA experience through kind of cobbling together all of these teachings from different people. Kieran has had some pretty incredible experiences as a writer. I have friends who have written and published critically acclaimed novels who still haven't gotten to see the curtain pulled back on publishing the way that Kieran has. I asked her if she had any advice to share with other writers who are starting out or who may be feeling discouraged after being at it for so long. I've learned how not personal rejection is and how important it is to keep submitting, even to the same place. You know, whether it's contests, it's fellowships, whatever it is, a lot of times the judges are different every time. The editors change, the people reading change. And so just because something wasn't a good fit at the time that you submit doesn't mean that the next time it won't be or that something else that you write will be a good fit. And I think you have to have this tolerance for rejection. If publishing matters to you, I mean, like publishing doesn't determine whether or not you're a writer, but if it is important to you, submit and then forget about it. And then if you get rejected, cool, submit again or somewhere else and just kind of keep that going. It's almost like you build a pain tolerance for it the more you do it. I know there's people who shoot for like a hundred rejections a year and I don't submit quite that much. I just don't have time or inclination, but I do think it made it clear to me, you know, I got to see behind the curtain a bit in the publishing world and see like, oh, okay, you know, this is what's on the plate of an editor. This is what's going on with like a small literary journal and, and what they're able to do. And it's never personal unless, unless you've really done something to somebody, in which case, you know, if it's personal, but otherwise just keep going. Even though I've been at this for almost 20 years and I've learned long ago to submit and forget about it, I really need this reminder. Many years ago, I got to have coffee with Rob Spillman, the editor of Ten House Magazine, which hosted the workshop where Kieran worked with Lydia Yuknovich. I remember him saying that cream rises to the top eventually. Kieran is proof of that. But she didn't get there by accident. She kept putting her work out there again and again, submitting and forgetting about it. It takes a certain resilience to keep at it long enough to see that cream rise to the top. I asked Karen to get specific about the submission process, not just about dealing with rejections, but about whether or not to submit to the big name places everyone dreams of, or 
the tiny but beautiful literary journals. I have strong opinions on this. Have a quality bar, right? So don't do anything that's pay to play. Like you shouldn't have to pay someone else to get your stuff published, for example. I think you should read something from the publication before you submit. One, to see if you're a good fit. And then two, like just pay attention. Like, do you like the layout? Are you finding typos? You know, five years from now, how are you going to feel about your work being here? I think that's fair. Not that a single typo is the end of the world, but just be informed when you choose where to submit. It's okay to have standards even if you haven't been published before or if you, even if you don't feel like you have any justification for it. You should always have a sense of where you want to be. That said, you know, there's the New Yorker, there's, I don't know, Sun. There's all of these places that people want to get into and they kind of miss out on some really amazing literary journals or, you know, stuff that's maybe online only or vice versa, only in print, that are actually really incredible, that are producing incredible work and publishing incredible work. You know, submitting wider than just the top five is important. In 2019, Kieran was awarded a one-month residency at the Vermont Studio Center, a wonderful residency that provides both visual and literary artists with meals and a place to live and work. You know, to just have like a full month to write was really, it was a real privilege. And to not have to worry about like meals and to just take that time to write and have that be my entire focus was just an incredible gift. Around this time, Kieran wrote her first essay, which was published by Nat Brute and was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. The essay is called Tight, and it's a gorgeous, devastating chronology of disability, abuse, and loss. It was an essay that was really hard for Kieran to write, and even harder to publish. That was brutal. I kind of actively avoided nonfiction or personal essay or anything in like the memoirish world because I don't want to tell people things about myself. But I wrote this essay about having pelvic floor muscular dysfunction and it was just so hard. I submitted it, it was accepted. I went back and forth on edits well after the editor, Kay Ulande Barrett, um, who's a fantastic poet. I kept sending in edits. I think I sent in like five further drafts, which I don't recommend, but Kay was super patient and understanding with me. Like I had so much to say about this disability, this chronic condition, whatever you want to call it, and how much it had kind of taken over my life. And yet I hadn't really talked to people about it because I had so much shame and fear. It, it just felt like this big secret suffering. And um, that essay was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. That's the first time... I've ever had anything nominated for a push cart and it was really meaningful to me um, that something that was so personal and so hard for me got that kind of visibility and recognition. The essay resonated with people all over the world. Strangers reached out to tell Kieran how much the essay meant to them, but also to tell their own stories. It's a gift and it's also, it can get really heavy. I felt very raw and vulnerable. It also means that professionally, you know, in my day job world, 
if I'm applying for a job and they Google me, like this essay is going to come out. Just all of this stuff that's probably TMI for like an office job, but it's going to, it'll show up. It meant that I have to be a little bit braver than maybe I wanted to be and be a little bit more okay with myself and people knowing that part of myself than I wanted to be. I really thought about pulling the essay for a while there, to be honest. So I don't know that it healed anything within me, but it did force me to kind of face it. I interviewed Alexander Chi and I asked him, because his essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, came out around the time I was doing the Tin House workshop. And I was talking to him about this very thing, about whether or not writing can heal you you know, because his essay collection kind of sprung out of a lot of his journaling. I think what he said was, you know, your writing can't heal you, but it can show you where you need to be healed. And I think about that, like it kind of shows you where the wound is. I think this is what I have always loved about writing so much, and also about reading the work that others write. Sometimes we need someone to show us in words and sentences where the wound is. Sometimes it takes seeing the wound in someone else or the characters they create to understand the work we need to do in ourselves. I asked Karen if writing something so vulnerable has changed the way that she writes. Like, I deeply believe in vulnerability. I think it's important. Um, I'm also, I think like you, I'm kind of a sad optimist. (laughs) Like a lot of really horrible things have happened in my life and I cannot like I'm just bent towards hope. I can't help it. I mean, I think you've probably seen this, but my brother killed himself in February. And, you know, I've been suicidal for most of my life. And at the same time, I I think the part of me that has kind of saved me has been just this relentless belief even in the absence of any sort of evidence that things will get better. I think that's kept me going a lot and it's really hard. You know, when I think about my brother, I don't know, there's something between siblings, like this very thin membrane between like what separates me from him. And I think we have to hope that people will find a way to connect to each other. And they don't always, but like, there's no arguing with that part of me. It's just there. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. During this time of sheltering in place, Karen was supposed to be heading off to Oregon for another prestigious residency with Ten House. The residency includes a month in Portland with a furnished apartment, a stipend, and a chance to teach a craft workshop and share her work in a reading. The award has been delayed because of COVID-19. She got news about it in February, right after her brother's death. Needless to say, her entrance into sheltering in place has not been an easy one. We buried him in like late February, and then all of the shelter in place stuff kicked in. It's made it really, really hard. And, you know, in the news, we're seeing people who've like lost people to COVID-19 and, you know, not being able to have funeral services, not being able to see their loved ones in the hospital. I have a lot of love and tenderness towards them. I can't imagine. Because even just the fact that, you know, we we buried my brother and then from there it was like, okay, now you can't leave the house. You can't like 
go scream in the ocean, which is what I want to do. You know, like you can't go get a massage or like go do something that might help you feel better because grief is incredibly physical. It's been really hard. I think it's been really hard for my family. I think it's been, it's extra isolating. I think suicide is already isolating to be a survivor of suicide loss. It's lonely. It's different from other kinds of death. My little brother shot himself and I think it's a particularly violent death. You know, my dad died in 2013. So it's just, it's just a lot. Like I feel like my family has been kind of just been detonated or there's just so much that's gone. Shelter in place also kind of reinforces the least healthy, most depressive parts of me where it is like, okay, it's so much easier to not get out of bed. It's so much easier to not shower. It's so much easier to just kind of like sit in the dark. Meanwhile, you know, like if you have places to go and people to see, that can kind of keep you from sinking. And so I have to, it's just a a heavier lift every day. You know, Twitter was incredibly cool about me just taking time. I think I was gone for almost two months. But, you know, I came back part-time and then now I'm back full-time. And I'm just incredibly aware of how much more energy, you know, like at the end of the day, I get off, you know, Zoom or Hangouts or whatever meetings and I'm just exhausted. And I have to remember, like, it hasn't even been three months since my brother died. So yeah, it's an incredibly heavy lift for me to get up and come check into a meeting and like do the work. And it's not that I'm pretending everything's fine, but being functional is a lot of energy. And I think that's true for a lot of people right now, but it's, there's this compounding factor, right, of grief. With my dad's death, we were close and it made me realize just in some ways that I'm still very much a child. I cannot understand the permanence of death. I just can't, like, I, my brain does not process it somehow. I think and this is kind of different from my family who are more religious. Is like, I don't believe in an afterlife. And so the permanence of that loss, like, it does not compute somehow. It's like banging my head against a wall. Of like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean that I never get to see this person again? Or like, what do you mean that I'm now going to live the rest of my life without them? You realize how much you would give for someone or to someone. And it's such a like strange and useless realization. Like I would die for my brother. And that's a really stupid thing to know now that he's already dead. And it wouldn't have been particularly useful when he was alive since he killed himself. It's not like I could have given him my heart or something, but I would have. I read somewhere someone described grief as like an overwhelming amount of love with no place to go. Karen told me a story about that first weekend after her brother died. She was overdue for a haircut and looked as bad as she felt. It wasn't important. I understand that people like, you know, when you're grieving, you're, there's a lot of like, oh, you, you shouldn't be thinking about your physical appearance or whatever. But I was. And I, I emailed my hairstylist and was just like, look, like I just buried my brother and I have to go to a conference in two days. Is there any chance you can like fit me in on Saturday? I leave like, you know, Sunday or something. And she was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. Come on in in the evening. And this is like, like her schedule's 
full. You usually have to schedule way in advance. So she like cleared some stuff out and got me there. And I came in and, you know, as she was kind of getting started, um, you know, she was like waving bye to her coworkers. And I realized that she was like, the place was kind of closing down and that she was fitting me in anyway. And, you know, we didn't talk a ton, but like she took me to the chair and I was leaning back and she was washing my hair and she was just so gentle. And, you know, I was just very softly crying. Um, and, you know, she just kind of stayed there longer than I think she normally would. And just she did everything with such care. And I just think like, to me, that's, that's grace. That's something that she's giving me is, you know, without me having to ask or just recognizing and being able to, to offer something to someone who's hurting is so powerful. And I think at the end, you know, you know, my haircut, she drives me off or whatever. And she's just kind of messing with my bangs and she looks me right in the eyes and she says, you look so pretty. And we both just started crying, Um, you know, and she hugged me and I, and I left and it was just, it just to me, something that sticks out is like these moments where we take care of each other that can be so small and so fundamental to keeping us going. And to me, that's, that's grace. That was such a, a moment and such a gift. I'm not a make the most of it person. I'm not a silver lining person. Like you don't have to take something that sucks and try and force it into the no, but here's one way in which it's still good. Like it's okay. Like stop denying it. It's just a sucky thing. Let it be what it is. And now let's also notice at the same time what is good. It is hard a lot of times, but what's the alternative? One could choose to be miserable completely, or you can choose to be miserable and also kind of happy, (laughs) like both. So I think that's where I'm at. It's like, well, I'm grieving. It's really, really hard. But I'm also going to choose to notice how beautiful things are because because I'm still alive, you know, and that's, that's not nothing. I hope by now it's as obvious to you as it is to me that Kieran is a pretty incredible person. Some of my favorite moments from our interview are still coming, but before we get to them, I asked Kieran to share some of her fiction with us. This is a story she wrote called A Boy's Name for Storm, and it was published in the journal Your Impossible Voice. Everyone knew the baby would be a boy. Majabine's belly hung low, and she ate lots of meat, and her rear swelled upwards. These telltale signs. When the England-educated doctor came to the village, months late due to a longer-than-usual rainy season, he had Nas, a house servant who occasionally acted as a midwife in her own village, touch the pregnant woman's stomach as he faced the wall. He could not look at another man's wife, certainly not one from such a respectable family. He asked Naz questions in Urdu. Naz asked Majabin in Pashto. Majabin answered in Pashto. Naz answered in Urdu. 
Majabin, of course, understood Urdu, but would not speak directly to this man, and since the doctor did not understand Pashto, it gave the women an opportunity to say things meant for their ears alone. I was hoping for a handsome doctor, not a bearded old Chile, Majabin whispered. With enough money, even goats are handsome, replied Nas. Nas pressed the taut skin, teased the baby. No kicks. A suspended stillness. She put her ear to the belly and heard only harrowing silence. Stillborn, the doctor said, shaking his head sadly. To lose your son, so sad, so tragic. To bring a child from the earth and have to give him back. And the parents from such good families, too. Nas mumbled a translation. Majabin took two deep breaths and decided not to believe it. When she went into labor, in the midst of a heavy downpour, her in-laws didn't bother calling the doctor back. The servants would certainly suffice for a dead baby. While she sweated and pressed, her husband's sisters dug a small muddy grave in the family plot, wandering back in the dark ever so often to bail out the rainwater that quickly flooded it. For a baby born without ever breathing air, there is no kafan, no white sheet to wrap the body, no grave markers, simply zamaketasparal, a child given to the earth for safekeeping, to be cradled until the day of judgment. But this was the first baby, Majabin the first of them to have a child, and while she refused to accept it, the three younger sisters cried quietly and busied themselves in making a small clay marker. It was too much to put the boy back in the earth without any icon to say here, once, there was a hope of breath. The girls placed the mud square the size of their palms on the veranda where it might dry protected from the rain, and they inscribed it, Zwe, 1955. Then they waited, fingering Tusbi, Subhanallah, Subhanallah, to fill the silence, to feel like they were doing something. Over the clicking beads, they listened to the deluge, and underneath the rain clatter, Majabin's groans and cries. Deep in the midnight blue-black, in the thick and undulating air, itself distended belly-tight, cracking into downpour and thunder, illuminated by claps of lightning spearing through the entire village. The first cry foreign and animal wild. It wasn't until after he was named, after the power of the storm, 
a masculine power to overflow, overwhelm, and destroy, a male air like a cataclysm, the word rising in Majabin's throat like flood water. Tofan, Zamazwe Tofan. It wasn't until after his name was shouted out in tears of joy and exhaustion, after the screaming and the yoyulation and laughter and crying and shouting, after the maid stepped out to tell the sisters, and the sisters went to tell the brother, now father, and his father, now grandfather, after the son's name was written in the book and on papers, only then, only then, as Majabin rested, sweaty and shivering, hot and cold at the same time, her wet hair lacquered to her face, only then did she notice the mushroom in her arms, her firstborn, was a girl. I'll be back for more of my conversation with Karen right after this short break. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. Kieran went into this time of sheltering in place grieving her brother, who she lost to suicide in February. She isn't ready to write about her brother yet. It's way too soon. Right now, the only writing she's doing is journaling. She's reading books, allowing herself to take the space and time to grieve. But she knows that eventually, she'll write about him. Writing about people keeps them... It kind of keeps them in some way. You know, I haven't done a lot of it. It's it's all just very tender right now. Um, it also made me realize, you know, as I've been grieving my brother, like how much I didn't quite get to grieve my dad. Like I pretty much got a week off unpaid and then had to go back to work or else I was going to be homeless. There was just no time to really sit with that. And so this has just brought up a lot. The first year after someone dies is, like, it's kind of a wash. There's nothing to do but to get through it. Like, you're not going to, like, achieve things. You know what I mean? And, like, those things don't matter even if you did achieve them. Like, it's just, like, okay, now you relearn. You learn who you are because you become a different person every time some key person in your life is gone. You find out who you are without them. And so that's kind of what I'm going through right now. And, like, you know, hating it, but it's also not optional. It's just so I don't know. I think there will be a time when I write about my dad and about my brother. There's probably going to be a lot of different times that I write about them in different ways that I write about them. But it's it's right now it's still very overwhelming. I mean, grief kind of really messes up your attention span. And I think that on top of pandemic also messing up people's attention spans, it's been tough. But, you know, there's just so much 
beauty and thank God for books, right? <laughs> yeah, I haven't gotten into like the baking bread and cooking and stuff that other people have gotten into. It's much more like, it's much quieter and slower. And I think that's also, it's, it can be good for me too, to, to be quiet and slow right now. Hearing Karen talk, it's no surprise to me that she succeeded as a writer. There's wisdom to her words that you don't often find. And also that bend toward hope. It stirs and challenges me to rise to the occasion during my own dark times. Because I know she's right, of course. Even when life is awful, there is still good and grace. And it's not about silver linings. It's about the good and the bad being all mixed up together and learning how to find our way through it. There's always something if you look. And I have spent, you know, like being a child abuse survivor, being a rape survivor, being someone who was a drug addict, being someone who, like, all of this stuff that I've gone through in my life before this point, there has always been some thing bright in it you know and it's 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 not just like a silver lining or you know it's not the upside of some bad thing it's just something that's happening in parallel so you know I mean like the people who've reached out to me the support has been really moving it's it's been hard sometimes for me to even you know talk to people I think I get nonverbal at times, but you know, there is, there is a lot of kindness that people have shown me. And then in terms of hope or what keeps me going, I don't, there's just so much still to do. <laughs> you know, I haven't even finished a book yet. Like I'm not going anywhere or, uh, you know, like we're, we're sheltering in place and we're staying home and, um, you know, there's a lot of like, think of how fortunate you are compared to others that I don't find is super helpful. I think it's okay to just like, let things suck <laughs> and just acknowledge that it's hard. Um, because then once you get that out of the way, it's kind of a relief and you can figure out like, okay, given that it's hard and given that this isn't what you wanted, what can you do? What's in your power? What, what little thing? is gonna make it a little bit brighter. I think the awful stuff, you know, is big and it's in the news and it's flashy. And I think a lot of times goodness and grace and kindness are very small. And so they might not make the headlines, but they greatly outnumber the awful. At least, I mean, that's my very fervent belief is that we, we do this for each other often without even thinking about it, like unquestionably. You know, there are people who believe that hell is just distance from God where you can no longer feel that love. And I can see grief in that context as a kind of hell where you're, you're separated from and no longer in the light of someone you really love. That's how hell makes sense to me. It's not about like fire or, you know, the, the really graphic cartoony stuff. It's just this, this absence and loss from, you know, of the beloved. Yeah. And I guess the, the inverse of that. So it's not so much, a, I'm going to see my dad again for sure, but there's 
ways in which I honor him and I try to keep those going in that, you know, in writing or those are the ways in which I'm able to come back into contact. Obviously I would much rather have my dad just be alive and my brother just be alive, but this is what I get, you know, this is what's left. I do recall, like, I remember you've talked to me before or just talked, I think, about being religious. I think, I don't know if you belong to a certain denomination of Christian, but I don't know. I I do believe in faith and grace and even prayer. I think there's just certain things that I like, like, I don't believe in an afterlife. And it's not even that I don't, it's like, I I can't, I just don't, I can't, I can't convince myself that it's there, but I do, I believe in grace. It's amazing that your daughter's named Grace, by the way, because it's something I think a lot about, and it's so key to my worldview of just the compassion that we show each other in the smallest ways. I told Karen that it's not an accident that we named our daughter Grace. It's so key to our worldview, too. And we talked about that idea of the afterlife. I told her that the vision I understood of heaven wasn't one of harps and angels on the clouds. That when the people of faith that I know talk about heaven, we talk about heaven coming to earth, transforming all of the brokenness with grace. It's the only vision of heaven that has ever made sense to me. Not to escape from this world, but to learn how to heal what's broken to accept that we can't do that alone. When we finished talking, Karen and I both agreed that our souls needed this conversation. Even though we both cried, we laughed a lot too. It seemed crazy that we could be talking about suicide and loss and somehow come out feeling hopeful, but that's exactly what happened. This has been, this has been really, I don't know, very moving and important to me. Thank you for letting me talk. I told Karen how proud of her I was, how excited I was for all of the good things I knew she still had ahead of her. She's a wonderful writer, the kind we need in forming our world right now more than ever. Every day in these episodes, I do my best to give you some gift of sanity. Today, the gift comes not from me, but from Karen. It's the gift of bending toward hope, even when everything around you points in the opposite direction. It's the gift of grace, of quiet, of the small kindnesses we show each other, but that make all the difference. If you've found today's episode meaningful, I hope you'll share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you listen. If you listen on iTunes, Rating and reviewing this podcast helps others find it too. As always, you can find more information about today's episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. You can also support Shelter in Place by supporting our sponsors. When you use the code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you get 10% off your order and support this show and also other businesses working toward more sustainable living. Before I go, I want to thank Imagine Mindfulness for becoming a supporter of Shelter in Place. 
If you're looking for a way to reduce stress, anxiety, and pain, Imagine Mindfulness is currently offering an eight-week live online mindfulness-based stress reduction program for a reduced price of just $50. MBSR is a scientifically proven, evidence-based program to reduce stress, anxiety, depression, and pain while improving awareness, clarity, and concentration. Use the promo code SHELTER when you sign up at imaginemindfulness.com to register and to support this show. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. I'll keep putting out episodes of Shelter in Place every weekday and Saturday, but I'll be taking Sundays off because we can all use a Sabbath. Until Monday, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.